Okay. All right, guys. Again, good morning. Why don't you guys open up your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45. All right, let's pray. Father God, we do thank you, Lord, that we can be in your word. And as I've already prayed, but ask you once again, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fall upon our hearts. Uh, Open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts so that we can hear directly from you. You have a work to do in each of our lives today. So, Lord, would you do that work? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week, you know, we saw how God was beginning to have a breakthrough in Joseph's brother's hardened hearts. Uh, Remember, it was like breaking through the caliche in Arizona. We talked about that, that hard sediment that, that forms over years And it just gets thicker and thicker and thicker when you're breaking through it on there. When you finally break through, you can get to the soil underneath. Something I was thinking about, you know, even after that study, though, with Caliche, one of the things is, you know, when it it rains hard in Arizona, you get flash flooding is what happens. And it's because of that Caliche. It's because of the hardened soil. So there's no place for the water to go. It doesn't go inside the soil. Uh, It just kind of flows over and flows into the ditches and stuff like that. So in order for you know, us to get to the good soil of our hearts sometimes, the Lord has to break through that to it so that the good water, the living water, gets into our hearts and starts doing the work and, and doing those things, fertilizing our souls basically, just making sure that we can grow, that we can become fruitful. So that's what was happening in these men's lives. Specifically, we saw how Judah, you know, how this amazing transformation was beginning to happen, you know, was taking place. Before this, we saw how he was really a self-centered individual that was once the very one who suggested that they sell their, their brother Joseph into captivity. It was his idea. We read that passage last week. He turned into a man, though, that became sacrificial in order to spare Benjamin from the experience or experiencing that same fate. We ended in chapter 44, and we'll read, just to get a running start here. Chapter 44, verse 30, it says, So if I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, his life is wrapped up with the boy's life. When he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Then your servants will have brought the gray hairs of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. Your servant became accountable to my father for the boy, saying, If I do not return him to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. Now please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. So there was the one who suggested that Joseph being taken into captivity now is pleading that Joseph would keep him as his personal slave and spare Benjamin. A radical work had taken place. And that's where we pick it up in uh, chapter 45, verse 1. It says, Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all his attendants, so he called out, send everyone away from me. Nobody was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers, but he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and also Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Man, you think about it. Finally, that sin that had so long separated Joseph from his brothers, it was removed. It had been exposed, it had been confessed, it had been repented of. 
And once Joseph was sure of that, he could no longer hide his affection for his brothers. This makes me think of something, you know, when we think of sin and we think of what it does, how damaging it is, especially if we have sin that we're retaining, sin that's uncovered, sin that's still festering within us and we're hiding it, the damage it does to our souls, the damage it does to other relationships. I had a, an employee of mine, you know, recently um, that he was, um, it was weird. Every time he came into work, he would work. He was a young kid, only 17 years old, and I bring this up for a, pur- a purpose here afterwards, but... 17-year-old kid, and uh, he, would, he would work for us, and then he would call me up you know, a day or two later, and he had these really bad rashes that were happening. We're like, what's the deal? You know, I mean, he only worked for us, for us a little while, and I said, okay, well, let's, you know, we didn't know if it was us or if it was something that he was doing at home, or we, we didn't know what it was. Parents didn't know what was going on. Never happened before. Completely healed. Um, came back to work another week or two later, tried to do it again, and, and the rashes were getting worse. Like, literally, his, his family thought he had leprosy. It was peeling so bad. Uh, his skin was just becoming raw in those areas, and it was spreading all around his body, and we're like, something's going on here, and his doctors couldn't figure out what it was. They were doing tests on him. They couldn't find what it was. Parents, you know, I'm in communication with them. They're obviously concerned uh, about what's going on. I said, it's up to you guys if he comes back, you know, but if, man, anything comes up, he's got to go. You know, we, we can't put him in this situation if he's allergic to rubber or, or whatever it is. You know, there's rare situations like that. I uh, came back and worked for just a day, and sure enough, those, those things started working up again. And we just attributed to it was just some, you know, weird allergic reaction, you know, to something in the shop. Uh, his dad came in. You know, he obviously quit, and we're like, yeah, no, go and take care of yourself. You know, I wouldn't want my sons to go through that. Um, his dad came in a month or two later and he goes, I need to talk to you. And we went in the office and talked and I thought, man, you know, what's going on here? And, uh, and he goes, hey, I just want to let you know that uh, my son, what it, the doctors found out what it was uh, because he started getting that rash and it was spreading all over his body. And it was actually now there's a mass that has formed over his heart, um, a thick mass. And it turns out that he has cancer. He has lymphoma cancer. And we're like, oh, man just devastated you know for this dad and i'm just thinking a 17 year old boy you know and um when i when i read this passage i think about that you know when we talk about sin getting exposed and it's you know even in that situation for this young child i think i'm grateful that he came to work for me because number one it opened a relationship between me and the parents where I can minister to them and I can minister to this kid. But had he not worked for me, I don't know that it would have became, become exposed. Uh, this was happening. It was already happening in his body, but he didn't see it. There were no signs. There was nothing there. That situation forced something to be dealt with. And, and finally, the doctor's like, we have to go now. So he had just went underwent his first treatment of chemotherapy this week. Uh, and he's got uh, 12 more treatments, I think, to go. Uh, they think it's treatable, um, but, you know, just, you know, we need to be praying for him, you know, and his name is Austin. I asked his parents if I could bring that up at church, and they said, yeah, they're believers as well. They go to Athey Creek, and uh, just, uh, just something that, you know, that, again, as I think about this, sometimes when it comes to sin in particular, it has to get exposed. You've you got to deal with it, because if, if, you, if it becomes exposed, you know how to treat it. Okay, but when it's, when it's hidden, when it's something that's hidden and, and you don't know exactly how to deal with it, it can do a lot of damage. It, it can kill you spiritually, right? Just like if that cancer went untreated and it didn't become apparent on what was happening, it would have killed him, okay? Uh, it's the same thing with our sins. 
If, if you go years and years and years hiding sin and you're just suppressing it and you're just managing the damage that's happening in your life, eventually that sin can kill you. It leads to death. Okay? Sometimes physically, always spiritually, but sometimes there's harsh consequences. And sometimes the most gracious thing that God can do is to expose the sin so that it has to be dealt with because now it gets treated. And finally, Judah was at a point where his sin became exposed. He's no longer making excuses about it. He's not blaming it on anyone else. He's like, this is what I did. This is what happens. And I'm begging you now, don't put me in a situation of hurting my father again. Because last time we almost killed him when we lost our first brother. I will give my life in exchange. Keep me as a slave. Let Benjamin go back. He was willing to give up his life for his brother. Man, what a radical transformation from the guy who was the one who caused his first brother to go as a slave. And not just that, but he watched for years as it broke his father's heart. Years! This wasn't just like a one-and-done sin. This was like he did it, but his father was forever changed. He was hurt for all of those years. And he just turned a blind eye to it. He just became calloused. And like that caliche, just got harder and harder and harder. And then the Lord turns up the heat and the Lord brings up in this situation. And he goes, now we're going to deal with it. Now it's going to be public. We're going to deal with this. He had no choice. <sighs> Finally, this sin that had separated Joseph from his brothers for all those years once it was exposed, once it was confessed, once he could see that there was a heart change that had taken place, once he was sure of it, he could no longer hide his affection for his brothers. When Judas said, keep me, send Benjamin home, I can't do this to my father, he literally broke down and ran out of the room and he's like, send everybody out but my brothers. And he's sobbing. The, the wording that's used there is sobbing uncontrollably. You know, I don't know how many of us have ever sobbed like that, where it's not just weeping, but it's sobbing, and your lips quivering, and your heart is busting open. That's what he was going through. He was, it was breaking his heart to see what had happened. Understandably, his brothers were both shocked and terrified. The young boy that they sold as a slave now has literally their lives in his hands. It's no longer just they're worried about this, this governor of Egypt. Now it's like, it's not just a governor, it's the one that we betrayed. Of course they were shocked. Of course they were terrified. Is this when he's going to get his revenge? Is this the moment he's been waiting for? Because they thought of themselves, I'm sure, at that moment and said, Man, if the role was reversed, what would I do to these guys? But Joseph didn't respond that way at all. In fact, in verse 4, it says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near me. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. I want to break it down into two things in that verse. First of all, please come near me. The sin was dealt with. And the first thing that Joseph says is, Please come near me. Man, what a picture of how God deals with a repentant sinner. That's, what, that's how God deals with us when we repent. We think, you know, it's going to take a whole bunch more, right? We've got to do all this stuff. And he's like, once you truly repent and you confess your sin and it's in the open and you're going to make amends, you're going to do it. The first thing he says is, come near me because you've been afar off. And that's what happens, doesn't it? When you sin, you're afar off. 
You know it. You can sense that God is, you know, you don't feel like he hears your prayers. You don't feel like he's close to you anymore. The sin has separated you from God. Now, as a believer, if you're born again, it doesn't mean that you lose salvation when you fall into these kind of sins. What you lose is that closeness. It's almost like there's a barrier between you and the Lord, and that's fixed until the sin is dealt with. And the first thing that Joseph says is, now that the sin's been dealt with, please come near. He initiates it, just like God does. God says, your sin is forgiven. Please come near once again. Draw near. God doesn't unnecessarily prolong the chastisement of a sinner. He doesn't unnecessarily. Sometimes chastisement is prolonged, but he doesn't do it unnecessarily. It's not punitive. It's not something he's doing just to make you pay for what you did to him. If, if chastisement is prolonged, it's because it's necessary. It's necessary. There's still a work to be done inside of you. But God, didn't, God never unnecessarily prolongs chastisement. Once he recognizes that the sinner or the person is in a place where they can receive forgiveness, he says, please come near. Come close. Draw close once again. Instead, much to our surprise, you know, once our sins have been repented of and, and, and the Lord has given us that forgiveness, he quickly invites us back to restored fellowship. Quickly. He's like, now, don't delay. Don't delay. Get back in fellowship now. And that's a mistake that a lot of people make is they fall into some kind of sin. It takes them out as fellowship. You know, they're, they're in a place where they feel like, you know, I can't go back to that group. I can't, I can't go back to church because I sinned and I blew it. How am I going to stand in front of all these people as a hypocrite? I can't do it. God says, quickly, come back quickly. You know why? Because the enemy likes to single you out and he does damage when you're alone. The fellowship of the saints is important. Because there's strength here. Because we can pray for one another. We can draw from one another. When the hands, the Bible says, when the hands are hanging low and the knees are wobbling, we strengthen one another. We pray for one another. We help one another. Nobody's perfect. This morning, Drew, you know, he's, he's over there banging on that thing, you know, and, and he's got so much more experience in that. And, and I was like, man, I'm sorry. I, it must be terrible for you to sit there and try to play with me. You know? and, and he's like, nobody's perfect. He goes, I wouldn't want to be part of a perfect worship team. He goes, I, I want to, you know, just be in a place where we're all, you know, just working together and do the best we can in glorifying the Lord. Well, it's the same thing in church, too. I don't want to be part of a perfect church. You know, I, I don't want a bunch of perfect saints that, that always have everything together. And it's just like so that the sinner who comes in who's hurting and desperately needs it, they feel like they're not welcome because everybody's too good for them. I don't want that. Now, I don't want you necessarily remaining in sin either. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to, you know... I don't, I don't want to be like the gangsters of heaven. You know, I mean, let's, let's, let's kind of bring it up a notch here. I want to be a bunch of people that are in recovery, sin recovery. Okay. I've been, you know, 25 years straight now. You know, I mean, that's what I'm looking for. We're, we're just constantly understanding that we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, as the Bible says. Yes, saved, but fearfully working it out because we understand that sinner that was, was used to control my life, that sin that used to be there, I am still prone to sin. It's not completely eradicated until I stand before the Lord. So I know the enemy can take me out. So I, I'm cautious of those things. I understand those things about myself. And I'm still working to that place, that sanctification that the Lord continues to work in my life and in my heart. We understand that about ourselves. And that's a healthy church. We're all working together 
pressing on towards that onward calling of Christ, right? We want to be more like Christ. That's what Paul was admonishing us to do. But don't miss another thing, too, that he said here. As they, came to, as they began to come near to him, he said, I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into slavery. Those words had to pierce. I am Joseph, your brother, the one you sold into slavery. He didn't have to say that. He could have just said, hey, I'm your long-lost brother, Joseph. We'll just kind of forget about the rest. He's like, no. I am Joseph, your brother, and this is what you did to me. You sold me into slavery. There's going to be a lot of lessons on forgiveness in this little portion of of Scripture here. So we're going to dig a little deeper into a few different facets of, of forgiveness here, okay? First of all, forgiveness does not come with an instant memory delete button for the offender. You know, on a computer, like uh, if I'm loading something in the computer and, and I want to delete it, you know, I can delete it, and then I usually have to go to the little trash can and I got to open that up and I got to empty trash, and then it says, you sure you want to do it? Because it's forever gone, right? Uh, yeah, supposedly. <laughs> I'm questioning that based on government stuff, right? Okay, but, you know, that's what's supposed to happen, right? You don't have that button in life. See, even if the one who offends, the sinner, there's no instant memory delete. You can't forget about what you've done. It's always there. The sin that you committed, the things that you've done, there will always be reminders of what you've done. People that you've hurt. Times that you failed the Lord. Shameful things. It's always there. You don't have to live under that condemnation anymore because you understand that you're forgiven. But it's just like, you know, I think of if, you know, somebody left, kind of lived a precarious lifestyle when they were younger. And then they go to, you know, some, they go to dinner somewhere and the waiter or the waitress or somebody that they had, you know, a, a bad relationship with, a one night stand or something like that. And suddenly that sin is right in their face as they're there with their spouse now. And they're like, oh, that feeling, you know, of, Yes, I know it's been forgiven, but the shame is still there. There's no delete button for sin. You need to understand this. When, when you commit a sin, that sin is there. And the enemy loves to accuse. He loves to stir it up. He loves to bring it to remembrance. And like I said, sins can be forgiven. Absolutely, there's forgiveness. But there's no delete button. The consequences are still there. You still have to deal with that. Got to be careful. Even though Joseph, I believe at this point, had already forgiven his brothers. I believe that work had already been done in Joseph's heart. They had to deal with the shame and the feelings of unworthiness for what they did. They had to deal with that. Joseph had to work through that over all those years. I mean, imagine how long it took to get to the place where he could forgive those guys for what they did. But at that moment, they had to deal with that. It was right before him once again. You know, I, like you guys, I, I've got plenty of sins that are, you know, forgiven and covered by the blood, but still, you know, it's, and this, is, this analogy is used all the time, it leaves scars, right? We're scarred individuals. We've got scars. Sure, there's healing, but there's scars. And, and you see the scars, and you, can, you remember what happened to get that scar, right? We all have scars. Spiritually speaking, we all have scars. 
We all have things that come up in life where it's like, man, I regret that so much. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me. But I'm so ashamed of who I was. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't even want to think about that anymore, what I used to be or what I used to do. He freely forgives us. But God does so by acknowledging the very real damage we did. He doesn't pretend like it didn't happen. He's like, I am Joseph, your brother, the one you sold into slavery. The damage was real. It really was bad. When he, when he calls out their sin and he acknowledges it and he says, this is what you've done, this reminds us that forgiveness does not demand forgetfulness. Forgiveness does not demand forgetfulness. You hear it all the time, forgive and forget, right? The problem is, if you're the person who's been sinned against, it's very hard to forget. You can still for. Let, let me be very clear. Here's an example of this in Scripture. You can still forgive someone when you cannot forget what they did to you. You can still forgive them when you cannot forget what they've done to you. Joseph is a shining example of that in Scripture. I also want you to see that forgiveness can take place before that person even asks for it. Forgiveness can take place before that person asks for it. Joseph forgave them before they asked for his forgiveness. And it wasn't some specific verbiage that he was waiting for. He wasn't like, when they come to me and say, this is what I did to you. I need you to forgive me for what I've done. Then I will give them forgiveness. That didn't happen in this case. Joseph had already forgiven them before they ever said anything. You know why? Because although it's great to hear someone ask for forgiveness, that is a great thing. I'm not saying don't do that. If, if ever you sin against someone, tell them. Confess your sin to them. Tell them. This is what I've done. I'm very sorry for what I did. It was wrong. I know it was wrong. I need you to forgive me, right? That's totally biblical, and that's, that's something that we should be doing. But... Actions speak a whole lot louder than those words over time, doesn't it? You know, we, we have been in situations, all of us, where somebody, somebody says something like, I need you to forgive me or I'm sorry, but the words ring hollow because their actions don't change. They do the same stuff over and over and over, and it's like, okay, you're saying the right thing, but your actions are, are completely proving that that's not real in your heart. Okay? The, the actions are what we watch, isn't it? I believe in the case of the Lord, too. Uh, yes, we're supposed to confess our sins, but I guarantee he's looking at our actions. He's looking at what we're doing. It's, you know, if you, like, again, you think of certain religions where you climb in a box, open a little window, and dump your garbage in somebody else's ear. Do you really think that you walk out of that box, like, completely restored, and then you go right back to your old life? Do you think that really is effective? Especially if you go right back to the way that you used to live. I've used this example. It's a vivid illustration in my mind, and I'm sorry for those who have heard it many times, but... Um, you know, I used to, in Arizona, I managed a store that was literally right next to a strip club. Literally. And on Ash Wednesdays, I would have guys walk in my showroom with ashes on their forehead, and they're like, I'll be back in a couple hours, going next door. And I thought, wow, man, you don't even understand what you're doing? This means nothing, nothing, based on what you're doing. 
See, that's dead religion. Dead religion doesn't bring about salvation. It doesn't bring about forgiveness. That's just religious. Religious actions that you're doing, but it's, it's never penetrated your heart. That's just being religious. And religion, religion doesn't do anything. That's just going through the motions. It's got to be more than that. It has to be more than that. This brings another aspect of forgiveness that, that I think we need to talk about. You know, all too often when the offender you know, asks for forgiveness, or maybe they've even taken actions based on what they want to do to achieve forgiveness. You know, they're, they're changing some things in their life. They've confessed it. They've repented of it. They've turned the direction. They're doing all those things. Sometimes they expect that there's an instant restoration of the relationship. And that doesn't always happen, nor should it in every case. Okay? See, sometimes people say, that, especially when it's just the case of, this is what I'm saying. Okay, this is what I'm saying. I'm telling you, forgive me, because this is what I've done that's wrong. But the actions still haven't lined up with, with what you're saying. If it's just words, then maybe the people need to wait to see what happens with your actions. And I'll tell you what, you know, like when I deal with somebody who's had some bad behaviors for a long time, whether it be work or in ministry or something, I, I try to tell them, okay, it's kind of like you've been digging a hole for a long time. You've been digging this hole, man, and it's deep. This hole is deep and it's wide. And now you realize that the hole you've been digging is wrong. And you're like, I just want forgiveness. I just, I just want to move on. Okay, well, I agree with that. You need to move on. You know, the first step is grab your shovel and start filling up that hole again. Okay, and it's going to take some time. It took you a long time to dig that hole. It's going to take some time to fill the hole back up. And then you can traverse over it. Okay? But you can't just ignore it. You can't just leave a bunch of holes everywhere and, well, I just need immediate forgiveness. I just, I asked you to forgive me. Why haven't you forgiven me? That's not Christ-like, really. Listen, you did a lot of damage. Sometimes people are waiting for what we talked about last week, which, which is godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Remember, there's a big difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is, I don't like the consequences of my sin. I don't like that I got fired. I want to come back. You know, I don't like that the relationship is ruined. I want to fix it. I don't like that I'm locked up in prison. I'll never do it again. See, that's worldly sorrow. There's a difference with that. Godly sorrow is, I failed God. What I was doing was wrong. And I have such deep convictions inside of me. I, it's just burning in my heart that what I've done is wrong. And I need to make it right. I need to repent. I need to turn from it. And I will accept whatever the consequences are, even if you don't return. Even if I don't get the job. Even if I'm locked up for another 10 years. What I did was wrong and I deserve it. You see the difference? Worldly sorrow is, I said I'm sorry, let's move on. Godly sorrow is, I was wrong and I accept the consequences. It's called brokenness. Brokenness is only something that God can do. You can't fake brokenness because you know what? You rat yourself out all the time. Okay? <laughs> like when you say, I'm so broken. And then when it doesn't change like that, your heart gets revealed. It's just like, I can't believe you're not, you know, you're not accepting me. 
That's worldly sorrow. Brokenness is, I was wrong. And I understand why you're not hiring me back. I get it. I understand why I'm locked up. I get it. I, I was wrong. I'm praying that you will change your mind. I'm praying that God will restore. But I'll tell you what, I'm moving forward now. I'm going to start shoveling and putting all that dirt back in the hole, whether you come back or not, whether that job returns or not. I'm going to do what God wants me to do because I can sense it's him that's dealing with me. That's godly sorrow that leads to repentance. That's sorrow that changes lives. That's the real deal. And sometimes people that you have hurt are watching to see what it is. What is it? Is this just you saying, I'm sorry once again, and you're going to do this again next month? Or is this really a change in your life? A lot of people want restoration, but they want to skip the godly sorrow process. And God doesn't skip processes. The process is something he has to do in your heart. Remember, it took a long time for Judah and all those other brothers to finally get to the place where they were pliable, where that caliche was cracked, where they were finally getting... It took a long time to get to that soil. We mess up and we think, well, you know, give me my phone back. Right? I'll get you guys too. Give me my phone back. Right? <laughs> it's been a week. No, I'm thinking 32. 32 days? No, 32 years old. Okay? <laughs> you know, because it's like... We understand that work hasn't been done in one week. You need to get to the place where you understand what you're doing is wrong. And once we get there, then you get it back. It's, it's the same as adults, right? You're like, yeah, get those kids. Really? It's you too. Because God deals with us as children, right? And he's like, yeah, no, I'm not restoring that right now. I'm not. You need to get to the place where you understand what you did and the damage that you've done, and then I will give that back to you. But you're going to go through the process. I don't like the process. Didn't ask if you liked it. This is what it takes to get you to eternity. This is what it takes to make sure you're prepared for eternity. We're going to go through the process. Some people are confused with this because they know they're taught all the time, and it's true. It's accurate teaching that the Lord stands readily available to forgive. You know that, right? The Lord stands readily available to forgive. But they assume that the work of godly sorrow leading to repentance is not necessary. They think if he's ready to forgive, then all I have to do is utter some words and say these things, and then like everything's fixed, right? That's the way it works. No, it's not. He's doing a work in you. In you. It takes longer for that. Sure, the penalty for sin is gone. The consequences remain. Okay? This is what's going on. It's not that the, the penalty is hanging over your head like, man, if I die, am I going to hell now? I mean, what's No, the penalty for sin is gone. The consequences are still there. And he's going to use those consequences to soften your heart, to sift the soil, to weed it, to do all the things he needs to do. That's what God's going to do through this. You know, I think of Isaiah 59, 1 through 2. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. 
It's not that God's hand is so short that he cannot save. It's not that he's deaf that he cannot hear. But your sins have separated you from God so that he will not hear. Big words there. He hears. He will not hear. Your sins have separated you. You must deal with the sins. It must be something that that you confess. You bring it to light. And only God can do that work. I, I, I can't do that for you, right? Nobody can make you confess your sins. Nobody can get you to that place where you're like, I'm guilty, I'm broken, I'm, I, you know, I'll accept the consequences. Nobody can do that. Only God can do that work. This can't be like forced. It can't be something that you just learn at church. It's something that only God can do inside of you. James says this in James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a good verse, isn't it? Just like I talked about earlier, right? Please come to me. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Man, it's like the bookends, right? The bookends are beautiful. We, we, we want to cut out the rest of it. We're like, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will, accept, he will exalt you. Oh, that's so sweet, Lord. Let's do that. And then you forget. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts. You double-minded. In other words, you say something, but you do something different. You're constantly, you're saying you want to do the right thing, but that's not what you're doing. Cleanse your hearts, you double-minded. That's God's expectation for us as believers. James is writing to the church. Don't forget that. He's writing to the church. He's not writing to a bunch of non-saved people in the world. He's writing to the church. Yes, God will draw near to you as, as you draw close to him. But understand, he comes and says, let's deal with this. He puts on his, his gloves and his boots and he's like, let's get to work. I'll draw near to you, but let's get to work. There are some things inside you that need to be dealt with. We can't go on like this. I need you to change. I want you to change. I want you to experience a closeness like you've never experienced before, but your sin is separating you from me. We must put it to death. We must eradicate it. We got to do whatever it is so this doesn't continue to be this constant yo-yo in your life where you're just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. We got to deal with it. Don't misunderstand me. This is not some sort of works that you can do in order to prove that you are somehow worthy to be forgiven. I, I thought of, I went to the Philippines years ago now, I think in 2007 with a group of kids. And uh, I became aware of, they have a reenactment of the crucifixion. You've probably seen that on the news or something where well-meaning people, they decide, okay, in order to get our sins forgiven, they think that by doing this, they can have their sins forgiven. They literally get nailed to crosses. One guy has done it for 33 years in a row, okay? Physically nailed to crosses and they carry him around and they're lashing them with, you know, whips and stuff like that. They're reenacting the whole passion thing because they feel like, number one, then my sins can be forgiven. Then I'll get some favor from God. It's almost like a superstitious belief that then I'll have good luck and God will pour out blessings on me. It's completely whacked. God never told us to do that. And you know why? Because the word of God says in 1 Peter 3.18, it says, For Christ also suffered for the sins... I'm sorry, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. I'm not asking you to do good works to be forgiven. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if godly sorrow is truly working in your heart, even though the penalty of of your sin has been covered, you will try to make amends. You will do the work that you need to do. You will accept the consequences. You won't walk around like a spiritual victim your whole life. You know, just waiting for a handout from God. You know, oh, somebody else victimized me and they did this and they did this. You know what? I have no doubt that they did. I have no doubt you were treated wrong. You are accountable for yourself before God. That's that's why it freaks me out on some of the verses in Scripture. Wherever it says, do not be deceived, do you understand the warning that that is? God is saying, you have the responsibility of not being deceived by somebody who is trying to deceive you. You're not going to be able to stand before God and say, but he deceived me. They lied to me. I was brought up in that tradition. I had no idea. He's like, I told you, you do not be deceived. We have that responsibility. That's a heavy responsibility, every one of us. How do we not get deceived? Well, this. Compare it to Scripture. What does the Bible say about this teaching that somebody is giving? Does it line up with Scripture or does it not? This is our standard of truth. Not the guy standing behind the wooden pulpit or glass pulpit or whatever else it is nowadays. Okay? It's the Word of God is the standard of truth. Even above mine. (laughs) Examine it. Search the Scripture, see if it's true or not. Now... The Holy Spirit is the only one who can bring them to that place. And then that person will repent. It's also at that point that their actions begin to align with the words that they've spoken. And that's going to result in a lasting change of behavior. But there's another key ingredient of forgiveness that we have to touch on real quick. The one that that I think will help us understand how we can forgive someone who has hurt us deeply. When you've been deeply hurt, and it's this right here. The role of sovereignty in forgiveness. People forget that. We forget that all the time. The role of sovereignty in forgiveness. Let me explain in verse 5. It says, And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here, because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. He tells them, Don't be angry or upset with yourselves for selling me here. Why? Because even your sinful actions... God was still in control. And he was always in control. And that's hard for us to understand when somebody has committed a grievous sin against us, that God was still in control. In other words, he says, you sold me, God sent me. You tried to end my life, God sent me here to save lives. You sent me as a slave. 
God sent me as a ruler. You removed me from my family. God sent me for my family. Do you see how, how Joseph came to the place where he understood God's sovereignty in the sin committed against him by others? Were the brothers responsible for their sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. 100% responsible for their sin. God did not cause them to do what they were doing. But God is so sovereign. You need to understand this. I can't explain it adequately. God is so sovereign that he can allow 100% free will and still be completely in control. You're like, that doesn't make sense. How can somebody, like, if I, if I just walk out right now and I'm like, I'm walking in front of a bus and I'm going to ruin your plan for my life. I'm going to kill myself. And God's like, I'm still in control. No, I just made that decision. Yes, you did. 100%. That was your choice. And you'll face the consequences. You'll be smashed. That's going to happen. But I'm still in control. That's sovereignty. That is complete sovereignty. That is so sovereign that even absolute free will does not fall outside of his control. Can I explain it all the way? No, I can't. But I see it over and over and over and over and over in Scripture where God is so sovereign that even the worst thing that people can do are still, are still under his control. Proverbs 16.9 says, A person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. A, per a person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. Do you see both of them working together there? What tremendous freedom there is in life when we start to understand this essential truth. I've been reading a book by Kay Author that has been a phenomenal book. It was so good. Um, I don't know the title. I think it's uh, Refining Silver or something like that. But I, I, who knows what it is. I'll find it for you next week. But it's a phenomenal book. It's so good. She says there, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but she says there is nothing in life that does not pass through the ever-filtering fingers of our Lord. If, it, if it's going to come into our life, it has to be filtered through his hands first. And we think about that when you're fil filtering out like dirt or your flour or sugar or whatever it is. It's like it has to go through his hands. And there's nothing that, that happens in life that wasn't filtered by the Lord first. No matter how hard it is. No matter how wicked it was. No matter how bad it was. It was filtered by the Lord. And he's still working through it. Even if we can't see it. God is working. He's still working. He's still doing something through it. Verse 9, Joseph refuses to dwell anymore on the wrongs that had been committed against him. He could have, he could have said, hey, we'll take this slow. We're going to work this out. He didn't do that in this case. He moves on to their future. He tells them, don't beat yourself up over what you did because let me tell you what God did through your sin. Remember? I'm Joseph, your brother, who you sold into slavery. You did all this to me, but look what God has done. Man, can you imagine standing before somebody who has wronged you and hurt you so desperately? I have seen situations like this multiple times. 
or somebody has been hurt in a marriage or severely wronged or whatever it is and years later sometimes it works out sometimes it doesn't I have seen though where the person who was wronged comes back and says makes peace with that person and says even though you meant this for harm and you, you treated me bad or whatever it was look what God did it brought me to salvation it led me to this other wife or husband that I would have never had had you not committed adultery on me or whatever all of a sudden it's like you have a much clearer picture that even though in the midst of that heartbreak that was happening that was so devastating at that moment God was doing something for you in the future that you could have never imagined and again I'm not excusing the sin I'm not saying that the sin was good I'm not saying that God's plan was that your marriage ended or that that person committed adultery I'm not saying any of that what I'm saying is God allows evil and still does good he's that good He's that good. He's that omnipotent. He's that omniscient. He's able to do those things because he's God and he's good. We're limited on our understanding. We're, we're looking at it. We're like, there's no way this can be good. There's no way. Austin's parents, I, I'm sure they're wrestling with, there's no way this can be good. But I'm sure that there is some good going on here. I don't know what. Even in a conversation with him the other day, I, I was telling him, I said, so are they going to put you in uh, the children's ward or are you going to be in with the adults? And he goes, I think I'm going to be in with the kids. And he was kind of, you know, 17-year-old. <laughs> He's like, I don't want to be in the kids, you know. I said, you know, Austin, it's probably good that you're going to be there. He's like, why? I said, because God's going to change your perspective of life right now. When you see these little kids going through some horrific things, your whole perspective is about to change permanently in life. Sometimes the greatest thing God can do is the very thing we don't want. And then he does a work in it that just changes us forever. Because he's that good. He's that good. Verse 9, Return quickly to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me without delay. You can settle in the land of Goshen and be near me. You, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will sustain you. From there I will be, I will, uh, will be five more years of famine. Otherwise, you, your household, and everything you have will become destitute. Look! Your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin can see that I'm the one speaking to you. Tell my father about all my glory in Egypt and about all you have seen and bring my father here quickly. Then Joseph threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept and Benjamin wept on his shoulder. Joseph kissed each of his brothers as he wept and afterwards his brothers talked with him. Man, forgiveness, restoration. He's like, Go tell dad that I'm alive. Go tell him what you see has happened in my life. Go tell him what God has done. God has done all out all of this to preserve our family. Go tell him God has raised me up to be the ruler in Egypt. Go tell him of everything God has done. Listen. When you go through something super painful... And you get to that point where you can say, let me tell you what God has done. 
There's nothing higher. You've dealt with that. There's nothing higher. Let me tell you what God has done. None of us want to go through that schooling. But when we do, and the Lord brings us through it, and He uses us to comfort others with the comfort with which we have received from the Lord, we stand back in awe and go, Lord, I can't believe you'd let me help that person. It's an amazing feeling. It's an amazing feeling. Years of damage were healed in that moment with one act of love and forgiveness. Years of damage as they wept and kissed one another and embraced one another. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. Verse 16, when the news reached Pharaoh's palace, Joseph's brothers have come. Pharaoh, Joseph's brothers have come. Pharaoh and his servants were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and, animals and go back to the land of Canaan. Get your father and your families and come back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you can eat from the richness of the land. You are also commanded to tell them, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your dependents and your wives, and bring your father here. Do not be concerned about your belongings, for the best of all of the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them wagons as, as Pharaoh commanded, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave each of the brothers changes of clothes, but he gave Benjamin 300 pieces of silver and five changes of clothes. He sent his father the following, 10 donkeys carrying the best products of Egypt and 10 female donkeys carrying grain, food, and provisions for his father on the journey. So Joseph sent his brothers on their way, and as they were leaving, he said to them, don't argue on the way. He still knew them. <laughs> He's all, don't mess this up, boneheads. <laughs> okay, we're good now, right? Don't start bickering again. Man. Joseph was such a faithful servant that Pharaoh and everybody else there was happy for him. What an example of living in the midst of the world. I'll tell you what, man, he was surrounded by the world. But they saw that he was righteous. They saw that he was a man of integrity. They saw that he was, that he was a servant-hearted individual. And when the Lord blessed them, they all cheered. That's the place we need to get at in the midst of our jobs, in the midst of our families, in the place where when God does bless us, that everybody goes, man, I'm so happy for you. Because you're a good guy. Look what, look what God has done. That's awesome. So they went up from Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They said, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. Jacob was stunned for he did not believe them. But when they told Jacob all that Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to transport him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, Enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Remember I mentioned that sometimes the, the Bible gives us hints on names? Before that moment, Jacob didn't believe. And then the very next verse it says, Israel said. He was revived. When it says Jacob was stunned for he did not believe them, stunned means to be numb. It's not surprising that he didn't believe him at first. That's what years of heartache and disappointments do to a person. 
If you go through years of heartache and disappointment, you become numb. That's how you survive. That's how you cope. You become cynical and pessimistic because you no longer expect God to do great things. Everything you look in the past and say, that's when God was moving mightily in my life. But since that time where I got hurt, God has never done anything good for me. Anything that comes to you, even blessings, you immediately just brush off because you're stuck in this place. Mentally, spiritually, it's a numb place. It's not good for a believer to get there. It's not good. And God loves us enough to shake us up. Once God breaks through that numbness, read again verse 27. When they told Jacob all that Joseph had said to him, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to transport him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. I think of Samson getting his strength once again, one last time. I feel like this is it for Jacob, for Israel. He's close to death. And the Lord says, I'm going to revive you one more time. Believe me once again. The promises I made to you back then were true, regardless of the heartache that happened in between. My promises never changed. My calling on your life never diverted. You went through a terrible time and your heart was broken and you were numb for all these years. But I will complete the work that I have begun in you. I will keep my word. And if you are faithless, I am still faithful. And it says, Jacob, now Israel, became revived. That's what I want for you guys. I want you to cry out like David, you know, a psalm that I've thought of recently over the last couple of years, I, especially the last year, I even titled a whole message on this, In the Land of the Living. It's in Psalm 27, 13 through 14. It says, I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. David was going through a really, really, really hard time at that moment. And he says, I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness, not just in eternity, in this life. You have to get to the point where in the midst of disappointments and discouragements and and heartbreaks in life, where you say, I'm going to hold on to the promises of God, even though right now I can't see how he's going to do it. It doesn't even seem possible. But I believe he will. Jacob had to be reminded of that. The Spirit revived him once again. And I'm praying for you guys that the Lord would revive your spirit. I'm praying that you understand the role of sovereignty and forgiveness. That you understand that when you're in a situation where you have to forgive something that you believe is unforgivable, you have to understand the sovereignty of God even in the wrong that was committed against you. You have to understand it. It will help you to be able to forgive. It will help you to be able to go on. It may not restore your relationship. It doesn't always end like this. But you will be able to move forward and not stuck in bitterness. And that I know the Lord wants for all of us. Okay?
Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for this example that you've given to us in Scripture. And I pray for those of us who are struggling with forgiveness. We've been hurt, some of us very deeply. Lord, would you please help us through this time? And if, if it maybe this is not the right occasion, would you bring this message back to remembrance when we need it? Lord, I believe that your word is true, that you are sovereign, that you will accomplish good even from bad things. I believe you do that for all of us, Lord. Help us to be patient, to wait for you, to wait for you and draw strength from you as we're waiting, trusting you. Father, let this be an encouragement to all of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.